starting in Acts 6-8. I won't read it all now. We'll read it a little bit as we go through it. Covering Stephen's arrest, his sermon, and his martyrdom. As we begin, I'll note that we love winners. We love it when our basketball team makes it to the championship game. We, we, we love winners, but it doesn't mean it's always good to be first. And any firstborn child can tell you that it's not always a good thing to be first. I'm the fifth out of six kids, and I remember multiple times my older siblings saying, Your, our parents let you do that? They were far more restrict. They had far more restrictions upon them. The earlier ones, they went you know, through the gates and knocked the barriers down so that my younger brother and I could thrive as the fifth and sixth. The first people to sail across the Atlantic had a much harder time than those who cruise across it now. Uh, this afternoon, immediately after church, I'll be flying up to the Pacific Northwest for board meetings, and my flight, even though I'm in a middle seat, will be far more comfortable than those who are first flying and first took to the skies. It's not always easy to be first. That is especially true for Stephen, who is the first person to die for and in the name of Jesus. This is a difficult first. Last week, Josh faithfully told us of the seven who were, fresh, or were chosen uh, to be one of the designated servants of the Lord in the church. And Stephen, having been freshly handpicked for service now, stands for Jesus and will lose his life for it. This will mark a critical kind of transition in the book of Acts. Jesus had commissioned his apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and then to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This will mark sort of the end of the witness in Jerusalem, at least as Acts records it. From now on, there's a transition point where the apostles start to, uh, in, or at least as Acts records it, the, the witness goes out beyond just the Jews in Jerusalem, but to the surrounding areas and then to the Gentiles also. This will mark the beginning of that transition. A critical juncture in the book of Acts, and as we explore it, I want to ask a simple question. As we look at this arrest and Stephen's speech and his martyrdom, ask a very simple question that might not even be grammatically correct, but I want to ask it, what got Stephen killed? I think to help understand what's going on here, it's helpful to ask that question. What actually got him killed in the end? What are the dominoes that fall that will lead to his death, his stoning? And then as we walk through that, hopefully we'll learn what, how we can be shaped by that and what that can say to our own souls, our own lives, our own faith in Christ. But we'll ask uh, kind of the organizing question for all of this, what got Stephen killed? First and very obviously, in verses 8 through 15, Stephen's accusing opponents got him killed. His accusing opponents were responsible for his death. Here Stephen is ministering, and some people will come and oppose him, and they'll make accusations that kind of get the ball rolling toward his demise. So Stephen's accusing opponents got him killed. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, 
and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So here we find Stephen ministering among the people. He, well, who is Stephen? We know he's one of the seven chosen to serve the Greek widows who are not receiving help from the church. So he's chosen to be among them. Stephen would be a Greek-speaking Jew with a Greek background. And here he's doing wonders and signs like the apostles. So we've kind of wondered who's able to do these wonders and signs in the, in the book of Acts. And not only are the apostles doing wonders and signs, but now Stephen, directly associated with the apostles, kind of in that area in Jerusalem, is also, at least for a time, able to perform miraculous wonders and signs. He carries on the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, now extended to and through him, ministering powerfully when some come to oppose him. People from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, along with Cyrenians, Alexandrians, Cilicians, and Asians. All of these are Greek-speaking people, so it's likely that Stephen had a particular ministry to Greek-speaking Jews, that he was kind of targeting those people, and they targeted him back. That He had a specific focus with his ministry. And as he's ministering and teaching about Jesus, some of those people oppose him. Remember the Lord promised that he would give his apostles words to speak when they were opposed, and that's exactly what happens here. They try and argue with him. They cannot. Stephen speaks in such a powerful, but more importantly, truthful and empowered by the Holy Spirit way that they cannot oppose him through speech, so they resort to other tactics. They have people drum up charges against him to the Jewish leaders. This might remind you of what happened to Jesus in his own trial, in his own arrest. False accusations brought against him. Matthew 26 says, and this is about the arrest of Jesus and his trial. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So that was at the the trial of Jesus. False witnesses came forward and said, Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple. If you know the story, you know John 2, you know what Jesus actually said. Jesus said the temple will be destroyed. The temple will fall. He he preached and promised against the, the temple that it would be destroyed and said, and I will rebuild it. And of course, he's talking about his own body, the temple, where God dwelled. So Jesus never said he was going to destroy the temple. He did say the temple would be destroyed. These false witnesses come and try and accuse Jesus. And they're doing the same thing to Stephen here. This Stephen, just like Jesus, he said he's going to destroy the temple. That's one of the false charges 
They also accuse him of other things. They accuse him of speaking blasphemy against the law of Moses. Stephen, again, falling within the line or in teaching of Jesus. Did Jesus teach against the law of Moses? No. Did Jesus teach against the way the religious leaders interpreted the law of Moses and applied it and the traditions and customs that they had built up? Yes. Jesus rightly interpreted the law, and he spoke against all those who used the law for their own purposes and held on to their own traditions and customs, and Jesus spoke against them. They interpreted that as blasphemy against Moses himself because they were so convinced in their interpretation and their customs. And they're going to lay the same accusation against Stephen that they laid against Jesus, that you are against Moses in the law. And ultimately, blasphemy against God. They'll charge Stephen with blasphemy against God because Stephen will uphold Jesus as the Lord. So there are three charges against Stephen, speaking against the temple, blaspheming the law of Moses, blaspheming God. And those charges all go against him the same way they went against Jesus. And what I want you to see here is that Stephen is just simply ministering in the name of Jesus and in the same way Jesus ministered. He is feeding the hungry as a servant, performing signs and miracles, and teaching Jesus as the Messiah and the fulfillment of the law. And that's what brings opposition against him, even underhanded opposition with false accusations. But you should see the connection between Stephen and Jesus. And then think about this. Stephen here is presented before us as somebody like Jesus, faithful to him, and that is what gets him killed. We've made this point over and over again, and we'll make it throughout Acts as we see people martyred and persecuted in the name of Jesus. Do not think that the more you act like Jesus, the more the world will love you. It is, in fact, often quite the opposite. Maybe you've heard this. I've, I've heard this as I've interacted with Christians in the world. If only we acted like Jesus then the world would love us. And it's not true. Certainly, we want to grow in our Christ-likeness, and as we do, those who are attracted to the Lord himself will be attracted to that. But as we grow in Christ-likeness, there will be those who oppose us precisely because of that, and they will at times lack integrity in their opposition. They'll oppose even in underhanded ways. So do not be surprised, as you seek to be more and more like Christ, that people hate you for it. That shouldn't be a shock. That, in fact, should be right in line with what we see throughout the Gospels, the epistles, and here in Acts and in Stephen. Somebody who ministering in the name of Jesus Christ and will be attacked in an underhanded way because of it. Accused. They dealt with him falsely, even though he had the face of an angel. It's an interesting line, isn't it? We'll come back to it later. First, let's look at the second thing that got Stephen killed. 
First was his accusing opponents. Second, what got Stephen killed was his challenging message. And this takes up the bulk of the passage, verses 1 through 53 of chapter 7. We're going to try and read them all. You're going to have to hang with me, all right, as we read all of this. I'm going to read through it. We'll make comments. And what I want to do is point out, we're not going to get into every little detail of this. We can't. We don't have the time. But I want you to see the themes that come out through Stephen's message. Because he's going to weave a story of Israel's history, but he touches on a few things very intentionally. So I want to highlight some of those themes as we walk through this and show you what Stephen is doing with this sermon and why that gets him killed. What got Stephen killed? His challenging message. Verse 1, chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Accusations are brought against him. High priest says, Stephen, is this right? Now here is Stephen's opportunity to escape. I'll stop there. This is his kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. Stephen could have said, no, these accusations are false. They're, they're wrong. They've got it all wrong. Uh, I'm really much nicer than what they're saying. Stephen could have gone down that road. There are uh, animals and things in this world that can kill you, but won't because of circumstance and opportunity. Okay, what do I mean by that? A shark can kill you. But we don't pray every Sunday against shark deaths. Why? Because our context, <laughs> we're not swimming in the ocean all the time. Very likely that nobody in this room will die from a shark attack. Right? So that's not something we're worried about. Now, if we kept putting ourselves in the water and going up and punching sharks, and that was our mission, that's something we would pray about. We might be scared of bears. Anybody scared of bears? Right? We don't spend a lot of time thinking about bear attacks. Why? So we're not in that context. Now, if we had a ministry of poking bears, we would take some more precaution. What's my point in all this? This council that was before Stephen had the power to kill him. But they weren't going to unless Stephen put himself in their jaws. And that's what he does. Very intentionally, Stephen pokes the bear. He could have kept himself safe and out of the way, and they would have had no power over him. But instead, Stephen leans in, and as we'll see towards the end, really pokes them. But he's doing it all the way through. Let me show you how. Remember the charges that were brought against Stephen. You're speaking against the temple, you're blaspheming the law of Moses, and you're blaspheming God himself. So Stephen's going to weave a history of Israel and show, actually, that's kind of your guys' thing. Starting off with, all the way back at the beginning, Abraham and the covenant fathers. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others, who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him, Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac 
and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now transitioning to the patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So those 16 verses cover kind of the beginning of Israel and his family. If you know the movie Encanto, like we do in our house, there's a song at the beginning, Family Madrigal, and those of you know it, some of you can sing it, right? And it covers the whole family history. And here's all our talented family. Like, that's what Stephen's doing here. Let me tell you about our family. And notice kind of the geography of this. Where does the family of Israel begin? In Israel? In Jerusalem? On the temple grounds? No. Stephen highlights that Abraham was called out of Mesopotamia. And and though he was promised this land, he never actually really lived in it and never had it. He was a wanderer, and and our fathers were wanderers or sojourners. And and even there, as they were wandering, God made a covenant with them and formed them as his people. And and then they lived in Egypt for a while, and our our patriarchs, the, the 12 tribes, and I'll make a side note, remember how they rejected the chosen one, Joseph? That theme will come up later. But right from the beginning, they lived in Egypt, and God was faithful to them there. And in fact, that's really where our people were, were born in some ways and were raised up, and they became strong in, in Egypt. And, and what Stephen is focusing on here is that our family history, our tribe, our people, and God's covenant faithfulness with them is not tied to necessarily one little location or one building. And that's a theme that he'll come back to. Do not think that this little holy spot is a confinement for God and his people. God is with his people ever. In fact, we were birthed from all over, Adam and Mesopotamia, into Egypt. And then his talking about Egypt will pave the way for a longer exposition on Moses. And that's what's going to take up most of his sermon because they charged him with blaspheming against Moses. So he'll talk about Moses. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own, or as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So here Stephen talked about the calling of Moses, how Moses was chosen as God's special one. He was beautiful in God's sight. 
God picked out this man to be the deliverer of the Israelites. How did they treat him? Well, go to verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Then the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And so Stephen establishes that the people of God have this weird habit of rejecting the deliverers that God sends. God chose Moses, this boy beautiful in his sight, raised him up, gave him power in the house of Egypt, sent him to deliver them, and they rejected him. Who made you ruler and judge? It's this family trait that goes a long way back. But God will continue to call and use Moses. Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So Moses is rejected by his brothers, the Israelites. He's exiled. And while he's exiled, he sees the Lord in the famous burning bush episode. And what does the Lord say to him? Take off your sandals. Why? You're on holy ground. Is that holy ground in Israel? Nope. Is that holy ground in the temple? No. I think Stephen highlights this to say, God's presence, where God is, that is holy and sacred ground, not brick and stone that are made by our hands. But wherever God is and calls his people, that is holy ground, and he can even call people out away from Israel. And Stephen expands or expounds upon Moses' ministry as it continues. Moses is 80 years old, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. 
Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. What is Stephen getting at here in this section of his sermon? He repeats, this Moses, whom our fathers rejected, this Moses, who pointed to a prophet who would be like him, who would come one day, who's going to be rejected again. Our fathers rejected Moses. They, they, they not only rejected him, they rejected the law that he gave. God gave Moses the law, or oracles, to us through Moses. Instead of worshiping God, our fathers, we worship false idols. While there Moses was receiving the law, what were the other people doing? At the same time, they were making a golden calf. And that practice never stopped. All the way through Israel's history, it's what got them exiled later again. They kept worshiping false gods. So again, Stephen was charged with what? Blasphemy against God? Blasphemy against the law of Moses? What is Stephen doing? It's like, this has been our problem forever. And in fact, it's your problem. Blasphemy against God, blasphemy against the law of Moses. And he quotes Amos 5, 25 through 27, and there's just a, a slight editorial note that Stephen makes here that I find fascinating. Verse 43, chapter 7, it says, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, if you're here in Sunday school, in Mike Bullock's class, you might know that Amos was a prophet, and who did Amos speak to? He spoke to the northern kingdom. Primarily, Amos prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel split into two kingdoms, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem and the temple were in Judah, the southern kingdom. Amos prophesied against the northern kingdom mostly, and in this verse that is quoted here, in chapter 7, verse 43 in Acts, it is quoting Amos 5, 27, except it doesn't say Babylon in Amos. If you turn there, it'll say another word, Damascus. Damascus is in the direction of Assyria. Amos in the original prophecy saying, you guys keep worshiping false gods, you're going to be deported by the Assyrians. You're going to be exiled by the Assyrians beyond Damascus. Here, Stephen changes one little word, changes it to Babylon. You're going to be deported, exiled beyond Babylon. Why? Who's he speaking to? People in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was exiled, conquered by Babylon. Stephen intentionally changes this to twist the knife to these people in Judah recalling how they have been deported, conquered by the Babylonians. 
he's making the point, you're just like your family. It goes all the way back. Just like the southern kingdom that was conquered by Babylon for their false worship, false gods. You have this tendency of worshiping things made by hands. And in fact, he's going to transition now, that even spreads into your obsession with the temple. Right now, you could travel to Israel and you could go to the Western Wall and you'll see obsession with a man-made building. And I've done this, and you can do this. You can go and you can take a tour kind of behind the Western Wall and you can get to the place that is the closest to where the Holy of Holies was that a non-Muslim can go because it's currently underneath the Dome of the Rock. So you can get to the place that is the, the closest to the Holy of Holies, and as you're going, you'll have a, uh, a Jewish tour guide, and they'll ask you to wear a yarmulke. Why? Because that location is so near and dear, holding on to this physical place where we might get close to the presence of God, where the Holy of Holies used to be, that fixation upon a man-made temple still lingers. And Stephen's going to push on them for this, verses 44 through 50, and remind them that God is not bound to a man-made house. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Here's the point. God was with his people long before the temple. He was with them in the tabernacle. He had covenanted with them long before them. He never left them. He was with them. And once they made a temple, God was still with them, whether or not the temple stands or not. God is omnipresent. He is sovereign. He is not a hamster that you can put in a cage. Right? Some of you might have a pet that sits in a cage. When you go home, you expect that pet to be there. Why? Because it is in a cage and it can't get out. And you know that every time you visit that pet, it will still be there. But God is not a pet who sits in a cage and then can... You can visit him there whenever you want. No, God is everywhere. He is not controlled. He is not put in, confined by a home made by human hands. So yes, the the temple is a wonderful place, but only insofar as God was actually blessing the people and actually there with them spiritually. But when he departed from it, so to speak, or when his presence was not there amongst his people in a favorable way and they were not aligned with him, the temple meant nothing, which is why it's going to be destroyed in AD 70 after Stephen had given this speech. Because presence with God is not about being in the right place, in the right building, with the right man-made traditions. This is about having a heart that is faithful to him and knows his lordship wherever the sun sets. Stephen is 
implicitly, maybe not so implicitly, criticizing their obsession with the temple, with the building, while failing to recognize who God truly is. So now he's going to be explicit. He was subtle before, now he's not so subtle. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Pretty direct. Which of the prophets did you not kill? Did you not persecute? I won't read it for the sake of time, but you can go back to Jeremiah 26, 23-24, and read of Uriah, who the king killed. Prophets who spoke the word of God who were constantly persecuted by the Israelites and their leaders. And that cycle repeated over and over again until finally they killed God's great prophet, the prophet, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Stephen says, this is your history. This is what you've always done and you're doing it now and you have done it in Jesus. You've rejected the law. You have worshipped false gods. You have worshipped a building instead of God himself. And you have disobeyed the law of Moses. And ultimately, you've killed the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. They charged him with blaspheming God, blaspheming the law of Moses, speaking against the temple. He turns the table on them, says, when did you ever keep to the law? When did you ever maintain the holiness of the temple? and all your false worship. You blasphemed God when you murdered his son. It's worth just asking the question, why did Israel keep doing that? What is, or was in them, and what is in us that keeps rejecting God in that way? I think what it is, if you follow the threads here, follow the theme, it is a preoccupation with the gifts of God over and against God himself. They love their traditions. These things that emerged from the law and their keeping of the law, the traditions they had built out, they loved them. They loved this building, this temple that on the surface they could just look to and say, see, here's God among us. They love the things and the gifts given by God more than they love God himself, which led to idolatry. As soon as they stopped worshiping God himself, loving the things that came with God, all the traditions and all the the temple worship and all that, loving those things instead of God himself led to their idolatry. And that is a lesson for us because we can do and we are uh, prone to do the very same thing. Loving the things of God or the, the gifts given by God or the traditions that we have in our worship of God, loving those things more than God himself. So this is a dangerous thing in the, to say in the middle of a building campaign, but we can fall in love with our facility and fall in love with our church culture and fall in love with our theological traditions and fall in love with all the things that we associate with God and love those things so much we actually forget to love God himself. And when we do that, it actually leads to idolatry, such that when God might be calling you, go over here, you say, no, I love this thing you gave me more, and I'm going to worship that instead. And that was Israel's history. 
God, we love this thing. You gave us more than we love you. So you may be calling us to do this. No, we're going to stay here. We're going to worship this temple. And anybody who threatens that, we don't want to hear about it. We are prone to do the very same thing. Our culture, our traditions, our families, our heritage, whatever it may be that we feel has come from God, be careful that you don't love that more than following God himself. Stephen's going to challenge them on that point, and that will get him killed because he'll speak against the things that they have idolized. But what really got Stephen killed is found in verses 54 through 60. He's pretty direct here. He pokes the bear. That enrages them. But his message isn't what got him killed. What got him killed was his Christ-exalting vision. It was his vision of the Lord that got him killed. More so than his opponents, more so than his message, it is his vision of Jesus that gets Stephen killed. Stephen's Christ-exalting vision is the last domino that falls, resulting in his death. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So after his confrontational speech, they're mad, right? They're ready to pounce. They're they're enraged. They're gnashing their teeth. But it's the vision uh, that really turns the corner and causes death. He is full of the Holy Spirit, and he sees the glory of God, and I think that's the thing that gives him the face of an angel, right? It's a parallel to Moses. What happened with Moses? He saw the glory of God. He had to put a veil over his face because his face was shining. It seems to me that what is being communicated here, that Stephen actually started to see the glory of God, or at least the glory of God shining upon him, out of the way Luke records it, before his speech. I mean, God was with him in his speech. God's glory was upon him before he started speaking. And now Stephen fully sees the glory of God and what he sees At the center of all of that, Jesus ascended as king, standing at the right hand. This is the same vision that got Jesus himself killed. Matthew 26, 64 through 66 says, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered. He deserves death. Jesus said, You're going to see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They responded, Blasphemy, kill him. Stephen says, I see Jesus at the right hand of God. And the response, kill him. 
It's only then when Stephen says, I see Jesus as King and Lord at the right hand of God, only then do they pick up stones. Leviticus 16, or 17 rather, gives the, the laws for stoning, and you can stone for blasphemy. Blasphemy is one of those offenses that you stone people for. So they figure they're in the right, although they aren't really following protocol at this point. You see, it's an unruly mob. They pick up stones to throw. Before they do that, they lay down their cloaks. I don't know if they just wanted a better throwing arm or they didn't want their outer robes bloodied, but they lay their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul who happened to be there. We were going to hear a lot more about him, but he appeared to be a leader because they lay their cloaks at his feet. (laughs) Almost a parallel to the way The followers of Jesus laid their gifts at the apostles' feet. They lay their murderous robes at the feet of Saul. There's a contrast there, I think. But just as his vision of Jesus was the same, his last words, Stephen's last words, are very similar to those of Jesus. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Those words sound very familiar, don't they? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this against them. Are Stephen's prayers answered? He prayed to be received into heaven, and he prayed for forgiveness. I think we have confidence that he was received into heaven and we know at least one is forgiven. We'll read more about him next week. But as we close, reflect on this. What was it that got him killed? A vision of the exalted Lord. Affirming the undeniable, unflinching supremacy of Jesus Christ got Stephen killed. Because the lordship of Jesus is a threat to every idol. First, the lordship of Jesus is a threat to our idols. And first and foremost... The lordship, lordship of Jesus has to kill us. If we are to be his followers, if we are to be Christians, then we must have a vision of the exalted Lord such that it kills us. We have to and are called to see Jesus as so supreme that we are willing to lay down everything else and lay down all of our selfishness, all of our idols, and kill them. I'm not being extreme by this. I'm just repeating what Jesus said. Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To follow Jesus, you must have a vision of his lordship such that you are killed by it. And that your sinful tendencies within you, your idols that you hold on to, are crucified by Jesus Christ. So the sexual immorality that you want to hold on to, 
That's not something where you can say, well, that's just the way I am. No, that's something to be killed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Your greed, your gluttony. You can't say, well, it's just the way I am. I just like stuff. No, that, that's a sinful thing in you that has to be crucified by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Your pride and your arrogance, your, your gossiping, whatever it is, whatever idol you want to hold on to, your time, your comfort. Jesus is not something that can be fit into the comfortable parts of your life and you just kind of, you have your things that you're committed to and then wherever the cracks are there, you can fit a little bit of Jesus. That's not how it works. Jesus either comes in and crucifies everything or you're not following him. Either he's Lord or he isn't. Either you're willing to give up everything for the sake of following him, whether it be family or friends or your comfort or whatever it is, you're willing to give that up for the Lordship of Jesus or you're not following him. He is Lord and exalted high. And when we follow him, that tends to be a threat to anybody else who's holding on to idols. And that was the case with Stephen here council holding on to the idols of their tradition in the temple, Stephen, a prophet, who threatened those things with the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the response was violence. To accurately speak and represent Jesus will provoke the idolater. It'll provoke the idols within us, will provoke the idols within others. But we must have a vision of Jesus exalted. How big is your vision of Jesus? How exalted is he in your own mind and heart, in your practice, in your daily lives? How will you develop a vision of Jesus as the exalted Lord? How will you train your mind to see what Stephen sees? Jesus at the right hand of God enthroned over all. This text, I think, comes as a warning and an encouragement, an admonishment. This is how you should see Jesus, at the right hand of God. But when you do, and as you do, be prepared to die. you pray with me? Father, I pray you would sober us uh, this morning. We are so often consumed with lesser things and trivial things. And while there's a time and place uh, and certainly a goodness and even a worship in enjoying the good gifts you give, and we don't want to deny those things. We recognize every good gift comes from above. Lord, never let us hold on to those things so dearly that we won't let Jesus kill them. May he be preeminent in our minds. May we see him, Jesus Christ, as Lord over all, and allow him to put to death anything in us that is not fitting of the gospel and is not fitting of following you.
May we see Jesus as Lord this morning and put our own selves to death in light of his glory. Amen.